On episode 208 of the Happy Market Research Podcast, I'm chatting with Michael McCrary, founder and CEO of Pure Spectrum. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com. That's the letter G, the number three, translate.com. Hi, I'm Jamin Brazil, and you're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Michael McCrary, CEO and founder of Pure Spectrum. Founded in 2015, Pure Spectrum is a modern-day technology firm that aims to be the AWS for empowering research automation. Prior to founding Pure Spectrum, Michael helped pioneer both Scent as managing director and Lucid as president. Additionally, he served as SVP of North American Sales for Greenfield Online. Michael, thanks very much for being on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. It's my pleasure. Happy to be here. So we'd like to start the podcast with a introduction of how you wound up in market research, right? Nobody starts their journey in kindergarten. I want to be a market researcher. No, they don't. <laughs> they don't ever. Uh, interesting question. Before I got into this industry, I worked in publishing in New York City uh, for a company called Meredith Corporation. And at Meredith Corporation, I had the responsibility of selling a, a magazine called Midwest Living. And being in New York City, the Midwest was thought as the flyover states. So I had to become pretty proficient in using data to support the ad sales uh, initiatives. It was a beautiful magazine. Um, people in the West Coast would know Sunset as its comp right. and Southern Living in the South and Yankee. We had both, by the way, in our household. Yeah, me too. Um, so I knew data, right? And oddly enough, I was connected to Keith Price and just outside of business. And that was the time when Greenfield Online uh, had just sold its custom research business to TNS and was going to be focused exclusively on data collection and sample. So what year is this? This is like 99, 2000? It's after the, the dot-com bust. Okay, 2002. Right, right. Yeah. so it's around 2002. Yeah. And I'm in print magazine. And I can see the handwriting on the wall that this isn't going to go well because you had <laughs> um, advertising starting to take off online. But it was yeah, pretty that was hard. a tough time for print. It was, it was still actually good at that time because there was a lot of skepticism. If you go back to 2002, there was still... You know, television was still the big dominant um, right. winner in ad dollars. Print was still pretty big. Yeah. Um, and now that looks very different today. But nobody really knew exactly what was going to transpire with online. There were a thousand different sites. This is before automation took place. Right. And the exchanges and the platforms. Right. Right. So it's a thousand calls from a thousand websites. So being in a big company like Meredith um, gave scale and leverage. Um, so I knew I wanted to do something online and I was familiar with data and it just so happened that Greenfield online was hiring people to do sales. And I obviously had no idea what I was doing when I got there, but had great, um, you know, you think about the people who are Greenfield online and, you know, I'm 
very proud to say I'm part of the Greenfield Mafia. You know, the, the people that came out of that company. I mean, Greenfield, for those that don't know, they were the early movers in the, and the dominant player by far, right, in the online sampling space. Super early, super early. Even, like, there's a company called Zoomerang that started right around that same time, now acquired by SurveyMonkey, of course. But um, they were the go-to source for sample. Yeah, it was... Uh... Zoomerang, you had Greenfield Online, mm-hmm. you had Survey Sampling. Right, that's right? right. You had Harris Interactive. And that was when Survey Sampling was was augment, was pulling their uh, phone bank, right, into gathering, garnering emails for exactly building that list out. Absolutely. So it was a pretty limited competition. And I'll never forget actually starting to work there. For those that work in magazine or, or ad sales, your year can live, you can live and die by making the list or not. Hmm. So you spend a lot of time proactively selling, you know, getting into the plan that's upfront for television. It's the planning. You might not be out for the whole year, but if you're not on the first cut, then you're, you're constantly behind. Hmm. And getting into this industry um, where I was so used to proactively always selling, always trying to get people to consider Midwest living, Mm-hmm. which wasn't the easiest sell in New York City. Um, I started getting these things called RFPs and RFQs. <laughs> and I just wasn't used to this like inbound, like, hey, <laughs> right h- how much would you charge me to do this? Right. And uh, anyway, I just liked it. Right. So I almost instantly felt like this is exactly what I've been looking for. Um, to me, sampling and market research is both cerebral um, there was an element of it being tech and online, which was, I was happy to be, to be able to say I was in an online business. Mm. And, uh, ever since then, like I've just, I've never had a desire to be out of this industry. I really enjoy what we do and the so, people we do it with. So talk to me a little bit about the, there's two things that stand out to me. One, and I'd never actually processed this before the Greenfield mafia. I love that. And that's exactly right. I mean, you, Hugh Davis, Keith Price, yourself. Who else notably came out of that? Right. So you have uh, George Lawrence, right? So he's one of the co-founders of Innovate. Um, even though they were acquired by um, Matt Dusig and Greg Lavin were acquired by Greenfield and we were public. So, um, you know, they weren't part of the GMI or E-Rewards. Right. For those of you who don't know, you know, the Dynata research now, E-Rewards, Backtrack, um, I don't want to forget other Terrence McCarran, right? Oh, he man. he has started a successful business of his own. Um, I you know there's it's lots Richard Thornton, right? Oh, so you know he's his very senior role at Scent, and you know he was part of uh, Mark Simon, who's not still with Taluna, right? But so there's just so many people that have gone on either to be important leaders in companies that became important or founded companies that are important or trying to become important. Yeah, it was a super fun time. There was like a lot of the people that are in leadership right now, kind of, by this I mean like long-term, more institutional leadership in in the industry, not like hired guns. I mean, they're still around and they're doing freaking crazy things. Like the Dynata acquisition of... um, uh, Reimagine Holdings. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. that was a big deal. Yeah, that is a big deal. <laughs> I'm very, very happy for 
um, you know, both the research yeah. analysis side group and, you know, Keith and Hugh and, and other people that don't, aren't known there like John Almeida and, and those that are partners in reimagine. Uh, cause I, I really think most people discount how hard it is to start a business, get through the first couple few years and then to scale it and then for it to become more valuable than just, uh, the founder, right. To have a business that has scale. Uh, so I'm really happy for, for Keith and Hugh and, and John for, you know, putting this overnight success of 10 years together. Yeah. I think that's so, that's a great point in terms of the, the grit associated with building real, real shareholder value and, you know, Keith, they, they've, if you follow their, their story, I even forget the name of the company right when they first started, but it obviously is Re- reinvention was it the was first name. Yeah. That's right. It was reinvention. Um, then they bought critical mix, of course, which gave them a survey platform. Um, and they've done what two big sample acquisitions, company acquisitions along the I, way. I don't, I don't want to get it wrong, but they've definitely made some, so, some really smart yeah. acquisitions along the way. And yeah. I really respected the way they, um, they, they were able to keep the founders around, um, mm-hmm. and, and not try and mush the cultures in. And yeah, I think they did a good job over the years of pulling together a good umbrella of cooperative businesses yeah. while allowing them to, uh, flourish as independent as well. So you and I have talked separately, you know, outside of this conversation about the overall size of the, you know, spend in the sample space and we'll call it, I mean, it, this number isn't right, but we'll just call it $2 billion for, I think that's probably in the high end is 2 high, billion so and 1.5 and low end is probably 1 billion and it's probably okay. 1.5. Right. I yeah. think it's hard to quantify because we have a, um, kind of a casual industry that doesn't have to document these items. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think 1.5 feels right. So you're at 1.5, you know, the, now the rolled up, as you said, you know, reimagined holdings and then, uh, uh, Dineta. SSI, right. Um, it's just a humongous beast, right? There's not a bigger company by a long shot. They're a large part of the global spend on, in fact, in fact, if you're going to do a project at scale, you might have to touch their, it might be hard to do it without access. It'd be hard to avoid them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and I sit that, don't say that in a negative way. No. It's just, uh, I don't think people give credit to companies and the convenience of scale that they can bring where it might be one thing to work with a company in one country, but if you need to do something in 10, 20, 30 countries and have, have the scale and expertise to pull that off, it's, there's only a handful of companies that, uh, can really individually do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, they're, they're large. I mean, they've definitely been very, uh, they pulled off the, these series of mergers, right? It was to be seen the other one's building approval, but they've done a good job. Mm -hmm. I've seen other mergers and acquisitions not go well. And, um, from my perspective and just for clarity's sake, we are, um, you know, we are not part of Dynata, right? I know people get confused about, you know, you like know, pure spectrum being tethered to Dynata. Correct. Right. Right. To, because both, uh, you know, a couple years back, there was a press release that research now made an investment and critical mix made an investment. Um, so I'm here to say on, on the podcast that, um, there is, you know, the business still has the same, uh, same independence as it always did. Um, but I have a lot of respect for things going well. Mm. Right. Um, I am not the kind of person that wishes any company, even competitors in our space. Um, and I don't even know how to define a competitor and a friend anymore. Mm. Um, but I, I really root for everybody to be successful 
and it is a big enough market, both in the sample and then the larger addressable market, which I think is pretty well documented by uh, documented by SMR to be more in the probably 25 billion for primary research um, of a 70 billion overall data and insights pie. Um, there, there's enough for for good companies to all have a a role and a place in it. It feels like the industry has been expanding. Um, I know that we've had the SMR number now of about $75 billion space, a really big, really big space of which you're seeing a lot of growth in social media and listening uh, uh, analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I, 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 I just got off a podcast earlier with the uh, chief of customer insights and innovation at Foursquare, Gail, in that conversation, she, yep. she had this great point of view, which is market research has never been more exciting because we have a seat at the table. Like she's literally involved at the, not only is she in the sea level, she's actually the rudder of the ship, right? When it comes to business decisions. And so this, I think the point that you're making is important, which is a rising tide, that rising tide principle. And we, as an industry, just have to keep it together and continue to figure out how we can add value uh, in order to, as opposed to, you know, shoot the cannons, right? (laughs) Well, I I think there are a lot of people who wonder about traditional research and how it's going to make it, right? Because there's so much more data. You leave, personally, a trail of data everywhere you go on your mobile. My them all up. Right. <laughs> That's yes. Uh, I have three kids at home, so there's plenty of things to clean up with us too. Uh, so, but there's so much data. There's been a fear that traditional survey research is going to perish, right? Or get smaller. And I remember talking to Jeff Miller, right? At Burke ages ago. And he said that every, you know, it's big data, um, is supposed to replace market research where he's basically saying, you know, they said that about social media, they said that about this and he felt really confident and it really struck me the confidence that there's a certain thing that, that research does that, um, is just not about data, right? right? It's about analysis, it's about recommendations, it's about, uh, predicting, right? Not just what's going to happen. And of course you get that right or wrong but oftentimes why things are happening, mm-hmm. right? Cause there's a lot of what's happening around us and data there, but to be able to make sense of why it's happening and then to next level, which I think is where it gets really brave is, is to try to tell people what they're supposed to do about it. Right. And that's a level up where someone like Gail is probably talking about like, she's probably not just using surveys and in her insights, right? There's probably have tons of data that is being generated in their, in their business today, customer data, website visitation data, if they have you know, app totally. usage data, all this data is there. And the appetite for data is not only growing, but it's going to continue to grow. Right. right. But the augmentation of that or synthesization of that to be able to make a business decision quickly, right? And I think that is where, you know, I don't know if we're transitioning here, but I think the speed at which businesses move compared to the speed at which our industry has moved and our industry being this market research survey industry. Um, to me, that's where the big intersection, uh, yeah. So the speed at which we, uh, at 
decisions are made. It doesn't fit with our current operational models. Yeah, and that's a and, and that's something that I I've, I've heard. There's two things there, right? One is the speed element is critical, that, and also we're about I'll give it five years behind normally from a technology adoption perspective relative to ad tech. Mm-hmm. Um, but that but the other part of that that's really interesting is the context. So it isn't enough now for a market. I like boiling it down to the restaurant example. This is my go-to, right? So uh, if I'm a restauranteur, I can't just care about the when the customer walks into the door and when they exit the door. If they have a bad parking experience and you and your wife have to walk a quarter mile in a marginally unsafe thing, the whole dining experience is screwed. Yeah. So The story that gets told includes a bad part it's the it totally it makes the ta- the food not taste as good right. so there's a so you as a restauranteur you know it isn't enough just to do in a survey you've got to understand the business context of how that data is going to impact the business so that you can help understand the full view of the market or the uh, user's experience so that it connects and drives change in the company it does right so i think everybody has a tendency to let the pendulum swing too far one side to the other, right? So I could sit here and argue to you that only uh, the high-end consulting firms are really going to add value at the boardroom Mm. and give you a compelling argument that that they get to know the business, they Mm -hmm. understand the subject matter, and that's how you get a seat at the table, right? And that could turn the other side and say, it's all about automated research products and how, you know, company like, McDonald's or Taco Bell can do, you know, 30 different versions of a product test with a similar or maybe slightly larger budget, but in a time it it just can happen the way it couldn't happen before. So that has a massive impact on what they can do in their business, um, more so than the expensive consulting group at the table. Right. And they're both true, right? So it's important to, to make sure as a business kind of that you're not trying to do both unless you're really big, then you can maybe span both. Right. But, um, but you have to be able to serve what the customers need because ultimately all of our customers are the brands and corporations, right. That are trying to bring things to consumers and the traditional methods of going to the agencies and things have, it's still the primary way that they, they do research and, um, but if we, we need to help them be successful. Totally. That's the, if we're not doing that all the way up and down the value chain, then, then there's a problem for us to be concerned about. But as long as we can meet their needs and help them be successful and roll out, you know, the spicy chicken nuggets instead of the sour chicken nuggets and one's a success and one's a failure, um, then, then we're adding value to their, you know, their shareholders and their company. So let's put a point on it. What are you seeing as trending at a at a macro level in market research? Uh, so I think there's different layers. If you are a brand, I think you're trying to make sure that you are pleasing your internal customers, right? Because everybody is ultimately serving somebody who's delivering to, you know, to the bottom line of the company, right? So the insights professionals that I've had the pleasure of speaking with this year um, have made it really clear to me that they need things to be at um, quick, right? And they need people to be able to help them be successful 
to drive the business, right? So I do see automation and, and, and productization. Um, it's not like it's brand new, right? But I think that it's becoming more, uh, it, people are seeing the benefits of it. It's starting to be done right. It's like everything's bad, like, like false starts. But I think people are really starting to get it right. Um, and then I think a lot of the agencies, right? So the market research agencies, uh, they're coming to grips with the fact that they're, they need to become more technically adept, right? And that they need to have um, their, uh, you know, you call it data streams or data lakes or whatever their own internal references. But the way that they move from RFP to data and recommendations has to become faster. Yeah. Um, and there, there's technology platforms and companies out there that can help them, right? Because the, the big problem with all of this is it's expensive and it's hard, right? The automation, if you will, or, or technology, uh, most people don't have a CTO or a million dollars of CapEx sitting around to go build something internally. Right. Right. So that's why you see companies that are technology and platform companies um, getting outsized valuations because they can uh, bring solutions that can help the, their customers thrive totally. right, without probably wasting money trying to build it themselves. Yeah, I, I do think that's right. The, on the, you know, Decipher, that's one of the things that I realized early on is doing uh, building a survey platform is really, really hard. Mm -hmm. And it's an evolving process. So, you know, whether it's mobile adoption, which happened, of course, around 2000, really, you know, 2006, 2010, big shift there in uh, respondent consumption. And then just, you know, all the AI that can go into uh, building a survey platform or a survey out of specifically the platform, right? So like SurveyMonkey does a good job of predictive questions based on your, based on your methodology. So, you know, you've got these different, it's really hard to do that. And then, so then to try to expand, to try to expand our um, technology expertise into, I'll say like panels, because that for us was a natural, why don't we just do our own panel, right? That's freaking, that was freaking hard. So we actually started and stopped that initiative two times. So getting to your point, like we'd be so much better off incorporating, right? An existing expert as opposed to trying to build it ourselves. No, you're absolutely right. And oftentimes the expertise in the agencies are their ability to do analytics and insights or to understand methodologies, quite frankly, things that I don't know. Totally. Right. A lot of But math. they also don't know how to build um, good product, good technology that has the right amount of features for everybody, but not too many features. Totally. Right. It's something that's usable and powerful. Love it. Yeah, you're right. So definitely focus, right, is the thing that we that we need to have more than ever before because out of focus comes um, speed, comes velocity. And by trying to do too many things, you dilute that focus. And I think that's what I'm seeing in the marketplace. The people that are going to win are the, are the ones that are, I mean, like Kantar is a great example. They're going through a ton of refocusing right now right. with consolidation of the, of the brands. So 
I mean, there's a, there's a lot to be said, I think, of kind of repositioning the company to say, this is what we're good at. This is what we're going to focus on. And then we're going to bring in experts to help us get the rest of the way, which is exactly their message to their customers. Yeah. And I think anybody who feels like they're threatened by having technology partners uh, should, they should be concerned about the value of their business. Mm, right. Exactly. So if you're not adding a lot of value on top of what the technology does, then uh, you should, you know, should rethink that. I do want to also talk about, you know, because we are most of what we do is to automate field and sampling. So do you want to talk a little bit about pure spectrum? I do. Right. Yeah. But, but in the, in the broader sense, some of the, what I'm seeing as well on, on, uh, you know, this automation of sample sample delivery that follows the same similar type of arc where there's a lot of hype and it's a wild, wild west for a number of years. And what I'm seeing right now, right, is actually, um, and that some people don't believe me when I say this, uh, but a lot of stabilization in pricing, right? Uh, because there's been a lot of suppliers who have become more comfortable, more technically capable um, with selling the word is, you know, programmatically, right? Which is really just about doing technology integration with different buying and selling mechanisms, right? So what I see a whole lot more of is that suppliers have become much more systematized in making the choices of what's a good survey experience, a good price. Um, and when those things happen, um, they are, they're making better choices than, than people make, right? It salesperson that, that potentially may have sold a big job at a big discount. Um, and that, that creates all the binds and kinks and operations that people are, are used to living with and that in this world of, of like call it like um, second round or phase two of programmatic where there's uh, less desire to do harm to suppliers or take advantage of them right because i think there was an era of maybe there was um not on purpose but just people thought that they could do things they couldn't do before mm. uh, but now we're seeing that the buyers are much more thoughtful around the sustainability yeah and how I, mean, I literally had that conversation with uh miriam at microsoft and she said i i can't increase my budget but so i put the question to her would you pay more for higher quality she's like, i can't but i would do half as much so meaning there's a 2x on the current cost per complete um that she's willing to pay assuming that there is the quality to back it up right and, and absolutely i think most people like the concept of cheaper, right? But then there's always a cost to cheaper, mm -hmm. right? There's always going to be something else that, that happens. And whether that's uncertainty in the, the data, um, whether that is um, an actual issue with the data, uh, that maybe it takes a lot longer to get done. There's, it's, it's never, it's almost a zero-sum game, mm -hmm. right? So finding that equilibrium where the benefits of the programmatic revolution in our industry, which has been boiling for years now, um, is starting to really take fruit where there's, there's some, um, it's like the adults are in the room and they're like, okay, like th this doesn't make sense if it happens like that, because there's not, there's, you can't do this without the value being there for this. We'll call them the suppliers, the panel companies, like they need to be able to remain profitable. It's, I always say, I, I never want an airline to be, unprofitable. 
I want my flight safe. Totally. Right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Right. So as a buyer of data through, you know, survey participants, you should want them profitable. You should want for them to be able to invest in uh, different ways of engagement and recruitment. Um, and the number of things these companies, you know, the good and high quality ones have to do to be able to, to, to fight fraud, right? Because anytime you're doing an online offer where money's available, you're constantly playing whack-a-mole on how to defend against the fraud, right? Well, if they can't invest in those mechanisms and, and they have to cut corners on where they recruit because the CPIs are going down, it is, it creates an unsustainable cycle that is actually, um, it's kind of the lifeblood of the market research industry is getting people to take surveys. Right. So we, we shouldn't, we shouldn't destroy it. Right. Yeah. It's a non-renewable resource. Right. So why pure spectrum 2015, right? You're sitting there and you're thinking, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start this company. Yeah. I was so, at that space. Uh, yeah. So it was a lifelong dream of mine to found a business. And I think if you were to talk to my, uh, you know, quite frankly, my three prior uh, bosses and CEOs, they all knew I had aspirations of starting my own business at some point. Um, and you know, I was probably not a great employee by the time I got to this point because I was so ready to be able to, to call the shots and take the responsibility of quite frankly, all that happened in the business, um, that I was probably restless, right? It's probably, um, so I'm basically unemployable at this point is what I'm saying. Um, so I actually didn't know what I was going to start, uh, when I came back to California and I got good advice from a good friend, um, that he basically told me, uh, there's only one person on planet earth that has been in the leadership role you've been in, in two companies that are in the technology space around sample. Um, and you know, you can't separate your head from your body and your head is actually, uh, knows this industry going back to Greenfield and into what this, we believe the future is going to be. So you should, uh, you should highly consider being in that space. And this, uh, I won't reveal who this was, right. But this was actually somebody from one of the two other major companies, right. Who gave me that advice, you know, don't try to become, you know, a, you know, a real estate, um, you know, tech platform because you don't know anything about it, right. You know, all the nuances of this industry and, and where you think it needs to go. Right. So do that. So I made that choice to do that. And you know, I mean, it's been going on a little over three years now since I made the decision not to take a job somewhere and not to start some other business to start this business. And it's been a wild ride. So what exactly does pure spectrum do? For our audience, I know. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, if you break it down, right. Cause it can become kind of complicated and make people get really, you know, make their eyes cross. Uh, we work very closely with panel companies and panel companies that tend to be, um, technologically really adept and savvy, right. 
and what we have done is we have created a, a, a website called an application that allows um, buyers, people, researchers and companies that buy access to online survey takers to be able to input or place their orders on our system. By placing those orders on our system, we're able to, in real time, transmit the details of those orders to the suppliers that they want to work with. Okay. Um, so if you think about the traditional back and forth that happens of, you know, how much does it cost me to get a thousand completes in the U S nationally representative by age, region, gender, and income. And then all of a sudden it shows up and it's got 55 quotas and you know, it's a lot harder than just, you know, that national rep, right. Um, our system actually, um, can help give the suppliers exactly what they're supposed to do with what's called an API connection, right? So it's our system telling their systems exactly what's needed. Um, and then we've worked a lot over the past couple of years on making sure that the survey um, platforms, right? Companies like Decipher or even a Qualtrics, I'll just throw out some, confirm it, the normal names that you would hear or CMIX platform. C-Mix. Yep. Um, that, that's actually where all of the information really lives, right? Because after someone writes a survey in a questionnaire, they create all these details. They don't, they don't need a thousand completes. Uh, they need 25 males, 18 to 24, that are Hispanic in Florida. And then they need 975 others, but those are also very small little segments of what they need. Right? So a survey becomes all these micro surveys, right? So we have focused really heavily with our customers on really being able to get um, a high level of alignment operationally so we can get that data from the the beginning of the workflow into our system so that we can give the supplier all of that information in real time. So I'm passionate about it because it's, I do believe one of the, the largest issues in our ish, in our industry and that's not just sample, it's market research and insights, is how many hands touch this information and how in like the game of telephone, how it doesn't get transmitted correctly. And there are every day hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who want to take surveys, that go to surveys, that they get turned away, right? And that's detrimental to the, the longevity of it, right? Because every time you have a bad experience, you mentioned the restaurant, right? Like they actually went to the restaurant and the door was locked. And the door was locked and it might even have said, we don't need males in the restaurant today. Sorry. Right? This so- literally happened to me yesterday where a GLG, $35 project, I never do these projects, but I'm like, I was charging my car so I had the time to kill I'm like ah, I'm gonna see what I can make 35 bucks that sounds okay right for 15 minutes second question in quote is full I'm like are right. you kidding it's right. so mean it's, <laughs> it's lame right it's like like I value your opinion uh, not on this one right <laughs> yeah so I, I just think it's a real issue and it, it's and it's a real economic problem for our our industry it drives cost up Right. So when people ask me, are you doing this so you can drive down and commoditize sample? The answer is no. Right. There's all, there's so much more opportunity cost 
just on failure to meet, to get the right person, the right survey, that there's, um, millions upon millions of dollars of, of money saved at the supplier level, um, at the buyer level. Right. And all of it is just because it happens better. Got it. So there's really, if you kind of like oversimplify things with two different types of buyers or customers, I should say, right. One are people that purchase, um, people completes on the, on the platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then the other of course would be panel companies that opt to partner with us and deploy or sell their, uh, uh, people yeah. their sample on the, on the platform. Absolutely. And, that you- and, and the beauty of it is that we are, um, you know, I saw that, I saw this, this was my favorite statistic. Actually, for me, this was one of the linchpin moments in understanding the real value of pure spectrum. And that is, you know, we have a, uh, three times better completion rate than other options that are in the marketplace because we optimize the um, quota uh, stream based on availability. So we're not over recruiting against those, against those quote unquote closed fill, right? Filled uh, quotas. Correct. And that creates just a much better user uh, experience. Yeah, that's uh, absolutely right. Um, yeah. And so the, there's kind of an emerging, um, less known part of our business too, which we call storefront, which is where we, we know that if we have the ability, I'll use a really tough word saying control to control the end to end data collection process, right? That, that we know we can have perfect information. In fact, I would be willing to take hedge bets on the, you know, the per click economics of selling, because if I know I have perfect information, then we will not send anybody that's not needed into a survey. We won't, right? So storefront is uh, our empowerment platform where we help typically agencies who have um, productized uh, methodologies things that happen over and over that need just different stimuli that is kind of digging back 10 minutes ago where they are not technically capable of building their own storefront, right? A, a where their customers or their internal customers um, can say, I'd like to run another concept test with this copy or, or with this image. And it's very modularized and, and it is, although, it, um, it requires a lot of involvement from the customer up front to set up their product. It is human free, like the labor to actually execute from, you know, picking the product to yeah, upload script, stimuli, sample, scripts, frame, sample export data, create standard visualizations. All that happens without the handoffs between people. Uh, so it's really, really, really efficient. And, and we love that sort of business because the more, again, control or information we have, where um, then the the precision of being able to deliver exactly what's needed is there. So, last question: three characteristics of an all-star employee. All right. So we'll start off with with the youngins, right? People coming in. This is their first job or second job, right? Um, so. I really don't like the uh, kind of the naysaying about the millennials because I've had we've had wonderful experience with people coming straight out of college or you know first job second job and 
the ones that have really at this company stood out to me, they are curious, right? They, um, so they don't, when you say, I need you to go from A to Z, right? You don't have to tell them that they need, need to go to B and then to C and then to D, right? Um, they'll clarify, they'll figure things out, and then they will actually try to get to Z themselves. And I think that's an important element of our culture here is letting people um, maybe even bite off more than they can chew um, while letting them know that they can come for help, right? Um, I'll say to other young employees, just there are some basics, right? Um, like be on time, right? Ask for a vacation. Don't say when you're going to take it, right? Just some professional etiquette and courtesies that people should, should be mindful of because there are some people that have been at it where, you know, you actually did have to have your vacation approved, right? Well in advance. And, uh, so, and I'm saying, not saying that doesn't happen, but, um, you know, just, uh, there's no entitlement, like don't have a sense of entitlement. Um, and then I don't know, I've got to think of a third one here. Um, I don't know, just take pride in your work and, and just, if it's something that you're going to do, don't mail it in, right? Try to do a good job. Even if it's not your favorite part of the job, try to find a way to make even the least interesting parts be good. I'll flip to the other side, all-star employees that are more senior, right? So I go out of my way not to get in the way of people that I believe to be at a certain level in their career. Um, because there's nothing worse than um, trying to tell somebody how to do something that they're probably better than you at, right? Just because you feel like you uh, like every, you need to approve everything or, or be in the middle of everything. So um, I don't know. I, I, if I could give a recommendation to people who are a little bit further along in their careers, be willing to take risks. Uh, be willing to tell your boss that his ideas or her ideas are bad ideas if you feel like it's a comfortable enough environment, right? Because oftentimes I'm seeking um, not for people to do what I tell them to do, but for them to tell, inform what the company should do. And then another thing, final thing, and I'll stop. I think this is three and three. That's six things. Uh, so I actually believe that all of us, at this company, we work for the company. I know there's the flip side of that coin that people work for people, right? But I try to inform my, my, what I do with my time and what I want other people to do with their time as, as a manager leader as to what, um, what is that doing for the business? Right. And it's almost embarrassing because it's like an office space. The movie from the nineties, like, you know, what, you know, what can you do for Inatech? Right. right? <laughs> uh, but really the business needs to be cared for, right? It needs for people to be doing the things for in its best interest, but that becomes circular, right? So, um, the company needs leadership that knows that the company can't flourish without great employees and the company must give back to the employees too. And that is super important so that people know that they have the ability to turn off their phones at night. But also know that if they have a customer that consists, you know, needs help, that they, that you know, it's it'd be good for the company if they can do that. But to make sure there's an appropriate set of boundaries. Um, so the the symbiotic nature of if you are doing things that help the business grow, the business will grow. 
um, and that the company should provide growth opportunities for the employee too. My guest today has been Michael McCrary, CEO and founder of Pure Spectrum. Thank you, Michael, for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast. I love the podcast. Thank you, Javen. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. As always, if you would be so kind as to leave a review on Apple iTunes or whatever platform you are consuming this content, as well as take a screenshot, share it on social media. It goes a long way in expanding our reach. Really appreciate it. Hope you have a great rest of your day. This episode is brought to you by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com. That's the letter G, the number three, translate.com.